morning, church. Hey, and let's just go ahead and congratulate our seniors at this time, too. Um, what a privilege it is to, uh, I've got one crossing the threshold today, so that'll be cool. Um, I want to, we're kind of wrapping up, so to speak, our sermon series called Dancing on Eggshells today. And uh, I, we're going to spend time talking about what you would call the eggshell of eggshells, okay? The big one, uh, money. All right, now we're not just going to talk about giving, okay? We're going to talk about how the Bible tells us to manage the resources that God's entrusted to us. But it being Senior Sunday, uh, I have a kind of hurt feelings about something. Uh, in all the years that I have uh, been, been preaching, no one has ever asked me to give a graduation speech. Uh, never. I mean, not even a, a preschool or, a, you know, a, even a toast at a banquet or something. I mean, I, I, nobody ever asked anything. I mean, they never asked me, hey, would you know, would you say a word? Would you? I think I've said like a prayer or something at somebody's luncheon, but it's kind of hurt. So, so I thought maybe this morning I would, I would take the opportunity to give a, a graduation speech, a very heartfelt graduation speech, a very serious, very serious graduation speech, okay? Um, so I, I'm going to take a, take a whirl at it as we get going today, okay? Um, remember, this is very Look at me. Very serious, okay? Principal Watkins, Superintendent Nelson, esteemed faculty. I don't think we have any up here. Exhausted graduates, I'm honored to speak to you today. Ladies and gentlemen of the graduating class, today is the first day of the rest of your life. Until tomorrow, which will then be the next first day of the rest of your life. Today, you take a giant step, a quantum leap, a bold foray into an unknown future. It is for you to decide whether you will go with the flow, go where the wind blows, take the path of least resistance, or strike out on that proverbial road not taken. Remember, as you walk the road, be sure to socially distance yourself from yourself because life is like a box of chocolates. It is not a game, okay? It's not a bowl of cherries. As, a, as an obscure Greek poet once said, you'll only go around once in life, so you must grab all the gusto, unless you believe in reincarnation, in which case you can grab some gusto now and a little bit the next life that you have. But I say, I'm saying to you, very seriously, to fail to plan is to plan to fail. Not to decide is to decide. It is nice to be important, but it's more important to be nice. So strike while the iron is hot. Give it all you got. Make lemonade. Don't take any wooden nickels. Don't look a gift horse in the mouth. And don't forget to vote. If you give a man a fish, you feed him for a day. You teach him to fish, you fed him for life. Although he will get tired of fish after a while. It takes a village to raise a child. It takes a lot of love to make a house a home. And it takes one to know one. There's no such thing as a free lunch unless you caught it legally because somebody taught you to fish. So get out there, grab the world by the tail, find your way out of that wet paper bag. Grip it and rip it. You have nothing to fear but fear itself. Your mission is to go boldly where no one has gone before. Reach for the stars, dream the impossible dream. Then, then you will be able to look at that person in the mirror and say, I have done my best, I have fought the good fight. I have made a difference. I am Spartacus. 
Carpe diem. Caveat emptor. E pluribus unum. Hakuna Matata. There you go. Congratulations, graduates. That's my best shot at it. <laughs> all right, well, all you, all you got to do is string together a whole bunch of cliches, and you got all this stuff that you can, that's kind of the little pithy advice that we give each other, right? Uh, uh, be the change. What change? And how do you be it? Love is love. What is love? What kind of love are you talking about? Who defines love? And if love is love, are those two different kinds of love or one kind of love? Like, why would you need to say love is love? It's kind of like saying baseball is baseball. Nachos are nachos. Air is air. When it comes to the subject of money, we give each other a lot of the same kinds of advice. And a lot of it, because it's so cliche, it is easy to remember. That's why we say those things, right? They're sound bites. They're, they're ways that we try to help one another remember what we think are important truths. But when it comes down to delicate subjects, we tend to lose our bearings a little bit because we want people to remember things and we want to do it in a way that people will accept. So we don't tell them the full truth. We tell them 90% of the truth, failing to say the last 10%. The problem with that is it's not a big deal initially, but if you take, if you're 10% off on the truth and you follow that out over a long period of time, you end up way off. If you were leaving the Grand and heading to your house, and I, I navigated your car 10 degrees off from your house, okay, initially you wouldn't be that far off, but if you kept driving for a few hours, uh, you might be in Arizona. So when we come to the scriptures, it's important not just that we hear the, the, the soundbitey stuff that Proverbs has to say, but that we take time to think about what it means. We take time to understand that the Bible talks so often and so precisely and so deeply about the subject of money that we saved it for today. Because, of course, adults never make mistakes with money. This is completely addressed to the seniors. All right, so you parents, go ahead and elbow your kids and say, boy, I sure am glad those kids were here to hear that. That's not really the point. We all, I'm going to say this in some ways directed toward the teens, but I hope it goes without saying that really being an adult means you just have more experience at making mistakes with money is all it means. Uh, and you make different ones that often have a much more uh, long-lasting and profound impact on your day-to-day -day life and those around you. The typical biblical or American financial flow goes like this. You make money, you spend money, then if you have something left, you save a little bit of money, and then once you've done that, if you have anything left over, you, you give money if there's something left over, okay? That's kind of the way that most of us kind of are taught to spend our money, or the way I should say my, my peers um, spend money. Okay, that, that aren't Christians. They kind of think of it in those terms, all right? I make it, then I'm going to plan out everything I want to spend money on. New couch for the living room, another television, upgrade the Wi-Fi, take the trip, buy the car, whatever the case may be, okay? Then, once that's done, if I got something left, now I'm not talking about what we say we're going to do. I'm talking about what we do, right? There's a difference between those two. Very profound difference between those two. Then we save a little bit, and usually that's for retirement, which really is, in some ways, a way of allowing you to spend money, just do it later, when you're old, and you don't have a job anymore, right? Or in that kind of way. And then if there's anything left over, then we give. Here's how the Bible would teach us very quickly to, to see money, okay? 
It starts with the fact that God provides all of the money. So even in, in the book of Deuteronomy, when he's talking to people, he says, look, it is God that gives you the ability to earn wealth. And also say that everything in heaven and on earth is his. He owns it all, right? So God provides to us what we have. And then from there, we give him the first and the best because that's what he asks us to do. So we don't give him what's left. He doesn't, he doesn't come in last. He comes in first. Then after that, the Bible would say, now save some money. Save it. Do it wisely. And then spend prudently. So it kind of inverts the way that most people spend their money, which is why we get touchy about it. Because every time the preacher bothers to talk about money and he does it in a way that's actually kind of precise, it's irritating to us if that hierarchy or that order is, has been flipped around in life. So when we get to the scriptures here, it is a great favor that the scriptures do us to get us to accept and call us to tell the truth about money. Because in no other facet of life do we deceive ourselves as often as we do in the area of money and possessions. We tell ourselves we need things that we don't need. Now, if you're going, what do you mean? I guarantee you, around your houses, there are things that you bought that you thought you needed at the time that you no longer need. Everything from the newspaper subscription that you did because you convinced yourself that you had to be up to date on everything that went on in the world to the car that's in your driveway that you convinced yourself was a good spend because it gets three miles a gallon more gas in it. So it was a good idea to spend $35,000 on a car to save three miles, or three miles per gallon of gas, right? That, that uh, it could be a, a, a new shirt, new dress, new whatever, right? We lie to ourselves. We tell ourselves that we couldn't give any more if we wanted to because we just don't have anything. Or we tell ourselves this one. Here's one breathed right out of the pit of hell itself. The church only cares about my money. <laughs> yeah, the church that baptized you, that buried your parents, that has nursed you up being a little kid. All they care about is your vast fortune. Sure. Right. Lie, 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 lie. All of it is meant to deceive ourselves into not having the lordship of Christ over our finances. And we think that by allowing ourselves to maintain control and sovereignty over that which God has provided to us, that our lives will be better. See, Scripture gives us a different picture. That is, that God is the one who actually provides it and holds people accountable for it. That he's the one that controls the storehouse. So, one of the things that in the narrative parts of the Bible, the stories you see, is that when people honor God with money, he, they tend to end up with more money. Uh, in the, now, that's not a uh, you know, back-scratching kind of thing. It's just simply to say that why would God bless people financially uh, with stuff that he thinks they'll misuse? So you generally see people who are faithful with money tend to move the ball down the field. That's not always the case. You have things like the widow's might story, you have other things, but in general, that's the, the big arc of scripture, okay? There is a portrait given to us, and it's got five prongs, and we're going to go through them very quickly today, okay? Uh, and we're going to talk about uh, the, uh, what you might call the five personalities of the biblical steward, okay? Uh, we're going to start here. Number one, diligent earners. Now, what does that mean? It means that 
you take the opportunity to work if you have the capacity to do it. Uh, you're not lazy on the job. Laziness is spoken of very harshly in Scripture, and it says in Scripture that laziness ultimately will lead to poverty. Uh, let me give you a few of the greatest hits from the book of Proverbs, and that's where we're going to be for a lot of the morning, okay? It says more about money than any other part of the Bible. Now, this is Proverbs 6, 6 to 11. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer, gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you rise from your sleep? This is where the parents of the teens go, yeah, sluggard, two o'clock in the afternoon, time to get out of bed, right? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Proverbs 10.4 says, A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Proverbs 10.26. A lazy person uh, will say that a, um, a lazy person puts strain on their relationships. Uh, this is uh, uh, 10.26. Like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so is the sluggard to those who send him. Proverbs 26.13. The lazy person makes excuses. The sluggard says, there is a lion in the road. There's a lion in the streets. Okay, that's a way of saying he makes excuses. Why didn't you do that? Well, there's a lion in the road. There's a lion in the streets. Because COVID, right? How many of you have been to a place where you can tell they're just not doing a good job? And they're blaming COVID for that. Is it you? Proverbs would challenge you. Don't be the, hey, there's a lion in the road guy or gal. Proverbs 26, 16 uh, would say that a lazy person won't take advice from people. So for right now, if you're not listening, listen up. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. Okay, a lazy person, I got it, man. All you people out there in the rat race. You should be out here like me, hustling. I decide my own schedule. Blah, 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 blah. Right? And you're going to have people in your life like that. Um, we look for this in everybody we hire at New Adventist Church. I call it intrinsic motivation. Are they people that I have to constantly go, hey, your job's important. Hey, are you coming into the office today? Hey, wake up in the meeting. Hey, no, because biblically, we already know from Colossians and elsewhere too, everything we do, we're supposed to do as unto the Lord. So if you're in ministry and you can't get out of bed on time because you don't think your job's important, then I don't know, there's no hope for you at all. Because if you, if you were checking groceries at the grocery store, you probably also would not think it was very important. And so that's a, we don't talk about laziness because we're afraid of calling anybody lazy. But if you've ever played on a sports team, if you've ever done any kind of team effort at anything, you will realize there are some people who are just not hardworking people. Their life is oriented around, how do I put the minimal amount of effort into this? Japan has a word for, for uh, 
death from too much work. Karoshi. There's actually a national Karoshi hotline, a Karoshi self-help book, and a law that funnels money toward the widow and children of people who work themselves into an early Karoshi for the good of the company. Okay? Now, that is not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about workaholism, uh, you know, and God has a, a rhythm to life, right? That's why the Sabbath exists. But when you're, when you're doing something on the job, and this will be a sermon series we're going to do later in the year, but kind of a theology of work. Your work is a means through which God provides the daily bread to your house. All right? And yet, you know, uh, when, when we're out of work, we have people that, that won't seek employment earnestly. Uh, when they find it, they don't work diligently at it. More than 100,000 people quit their jobs every day in the United States, 100,000. Now, that doesn't mean they shouldn't, or some of those people shouldn't have done it. It just is an interesting um, current thing, and I'll, I'll let you guess whether that got better. That, that number was before COVID, if that's, been, if that's gone up or down. Those of you who are employers, you know which direction it went. Lastly, before this horse is dead, Proverbs 21.5 says this, good planning and hard work lead to prosperity, but hasty shortcuts lead to poverty. Now, uh, the Proverbs, most of the time, are axioms, okay? They're general truisms. They're not designed to be taken exclusively, literally, in every case, in every situation. These are general rules for life, and that is one that pops up almost like at every turn in Scripture, whether it pops up in the stories through translating the story, interpreting properly, or something else. So God's people are diligent earners. Number two, cautious debtors. Um, I don't believe that the Bible teaches that debt is always sinful. It does not do that. Okay. However, this is as of last night. Here are your numbers. Americans owe $1.6 trillion in student loans alone. Trillion. Okay. Another $15 trillion in personal debt. Personal debt. Our country owes $29 trillion. Now, that's, I'm not a mathematician, but that sounds like a lot of money. Um, and so when, when you look at uh, what the society that we're a part of is doing. It's not always wrong to borrow money. But Proverbs does say that the borrower becomes a slave to the lender. Proverbs 22, 7. The rich rules over the poor. The borrower is slave to the lender. I mean, do you realize why most Americans don't own an elephant? It's because nobody's ever offered one at zero down and zero payments for a year. Um, if they did, we all might have elephants in our backyards, right? Um, I watched a, a 30 for 30 special on ESPN over the weekend called Broke. And it's a special on athletes who made millions and ended up going bankrupt within a couple, few years after they made their fortunes. At the top of the list, you had Mike Tyson, who went through $500 million. Okay. $500 million. Uh, and then you had kind of your, your everyday kind of NFL linemen and those types of folks, right? 
But the idea that we have is the only reason I go into debt is because I can't afford it. Okay, or that I have to have it. So these all kind of form a web of deceit that Satan uses to kind of make us slaves to the lender or to warp our view of money. All right, there's a money myth that we all need just a little bit more. The Romans used to have a saying, money is like seawater. The more a man drinks of it, the thirstier he becomes. Ecclesiastes 5.10 put it this way. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever has wealth is never satisfied with his income. Now, this is from a man, by the way, who, who had it all. Nobody alive today has much as Solomon had. This, too, is meaningless. God does not want us to live that way. So part of that is this, being a prudent consumer. And this, has, uh, this is next. So we've got diligent earner, cautious debtor, prudent consumer. Now, this has two kind of prongs to it. One is how we spend the money, and then the other is how much we spend, right? Uh, first, it means we don't purchase things that contribute to evil. I saw an article in the Arizona Republic a while back. Uh, the article was about a Kuwaiti businessman who had a lavish lifestyle. He talks about his homes and his cars and how he lived and how he chose to spend his money. He owned a lavishly outfitted 747. Now, he had a bit of a heart condition, so he had it outfitted with all of this uh, state-of-the-art cardiac medical stuff. And he had a gyroscope that oriented toward Mecca at all times. So if he wanted to pray, he just, just get into this thing and it would rotate him to wherever he needed to go. And he could do that. But, but, but the medical piece was, was interesting because it wasn't just the equipment and it wasn't just that he had doctors. On board, he had a human who was being paid to, in the event that he needed a heart transplant, that he would give up his life and on the spot have his heart taken from him while he was alive and given to the wealthy guy and his family in response would be taken care of handsomely now uh, those are, that's an extreme example but there are other things that we do that we need to do, put some very strong thought into where we invest our money um, the use of certain vices like pornography, things like that, 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 that we don't even understand the ripple effect and the ramifications of spending the way that we spend. Spending in ways that further things that are not just in the world or things that are corrupt and evil in the world. Now, in addition to not using money unethically, the prudent consumer buys wisely. That doesn't mean, by the way, buying as little as possible. It means that you spend on things that either further increase, bless the lives of the less fortunate, or grab hold of an opportunity for expanding the kingdom. And you can't do that if you're overspending. Okay. Uh, over the last couple of weeks, preparing for this sermon, I went to five people that I trust, whose financial opinion I trust more than anybody else walking the earth. They range from an Ivy League finance professor to a bank president, okay, and all points in between. I asked them two questions. What's the single biggest mistake that you see people make with their money? And then what is the single best thing that you see people do with their money? Here's what they said, okay? All five of them said the same thing on both fronts. Biggest mistake, they spend more than they make. Okay, what's the best decision they make? They spent less than they made. All five of them said that, okay? 
See, most of us really don't have an income problem. Some do. Not saying they don't. Most of us have a spending problem. The majority. Uh, and sometimes uh, the, the root of that is what the Bible would call greed, gluttony, envy, covetousness, materialism. And we're pounded from without. I mean, from, from outside, we're pounded by advertising, right? Trying to get us to buy stuff. Last year, and this is way beyond the mail order catalog days, but there were 40 billion of those things mailed out last year. 40 billion mail order catalogs went out last year. Anybody in the room uh, get a call warning them that their extended warranty on their car um, has been out there? I've got about 25 of them this week, okay? Um, you got to buy this, panic stricken, get a letter on the outside, urgent matter, open immediately. You open it up and it's an ad to sell you a loan or it's an ad to get you to buy a car or a weekend sale going on or a Marriott vacation thing or whatever, right? Pounded, pounded, pounded. So if you don't have a plan, you don't have discipline, you don't have principles that are guiding your financial life, you're going to get pulled all over the place. But the Spirit of God would suggest to us that the discipline that we need to honor God with our money is available to us through his power. So let's give it a shot. Let's say that your household income is $60,000 a year, okay? Uh, that's very close to the median here in California. 20 years goes by. You receive no raises whatsoever, and you practice. Uh, again, this is not, uh, I'm going to give you a little plan here that will probably make, uh, it will make a millionaire out of you. Now, that's not the goal. We'll get there in a second. 10, 10, 80. You give 10, you save 10, you live on 80. If you did that, you made $60,000 a year and you got no raises, okay? If you had 8% growth in what you saved, uh, which is about the mean over the, over, uh, over the last 20 years, uh, you would have given over those 20 years $120,000 and you would have $313,000 in the bank. So if you're 18 and you do that, okay, by the time you're 38, you would have $313,000 in the bank, you would have given $120,000 away. Now, you do that for another 20 years. So now you're 58. You would have given $240,000 away, and your nest egg would be $2.7 million. Now, that's assuming you get no raises over 40 years, and you only make 60. Your investments only make 8%. So... I mean, I guess we can say what we want, but the reality is if, you, uh, if we were able to do that and to be disciplined enough to do it, uh, we would end up doing better than most people are. I'll speak for me. I don't have $2.7 million in the bank. I don't even have 313000 in the bank, right? Um, probably never will, but that's one of those things, and part of that is learning to, to do disciplines. Now, now, Em and I do, do, I think, or have been very faithful on the giving side, and we've been pretty faithful even on the saving side, but boy, that spending thing. So she got three termites, I mean, children that you're working with, <laughs> eating through your wallet all the time, you know? Um, 
you know, it's hard, right? And, and you, you, you feel the pressure to, and then you're out here in California where the real estate market goes up and down and wah, 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 see how the rationalization goes. And now that's why I don't, because otherwise it would have been, you know, and, and then we start lying to ourselves and then we back away from what scripture has to say instead of taking the next step, which is this, wise savers. Okay, after we've given a tithe or beyond, the wisdom of the Bible would urge us to save a portion of what God provides. Proverbs 21.20 puts it this way. The wise store up choice food and oil. Fools gulp theirs down. All right. Um, Joseph, that's our next sermon series, by the way. It starts in two weeks. We're doing the life of Joseph this summer. We're calling it the dreamer. Um, one of the th- parts that happens is Joseph is given a dream, and, he's a, and God tells him there's going to be a famine in the land, so store up grain in the barn because there is going to be a famine. Now, for many of us, that that reality is going to happen. We're going to lose a job. Uh, something's going to happen that's going to cause some turbulence, right? But if you have grain in the storehouse, that, then God's already pre-provided for you. And we don't have to panic uh, the way that, that others might have to. Now, there's some caution to be used here. Jesus tells a story about a man who saves and saves and saves for the future, and God takes his life. However, the point of that story is not thou shalt not save. The point is don't build up for yourselves treasures on earth. Saving is biblical, uh, and it's, frankly, relatively scarcely being done today, which, considering how low the giving rate is, that means overspending is the cause of most people's lack of saving, not overgiving, right? So that's why, according to ABC News, 80% of people will reach the age of 65 with $250 or less in savings. You hear that? 250 bucks. 80%. Um, ABC News, same, same study, said that 25% of Americans think their best chance for building wealth for retirement is winning the lottery. You see what I'm saying? Um, for some of you, your retirement plan is inheritance. You're just waiting for somebody to go be with Jesus. And <laughs> as they say, where there's a will, there's a relative. So, yeah, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> My parents are going to be in the next service. They'll find that funny. But uh, part, of, part of good stewardship, folks, and friends, is, is, is not spending every dime we get, but through the power that God provides, giving to God first, saving some aside, and then spending wisely. Okay? I watched an interview with a financial planner uh, maybe three weeks ago. He was begging people, particularly young people, to buy cars that they could pay for with cash. He noted that the average car payment in America, $378 a month. He said, if you're 24 years old and you paid cash for a car and instead you put the $378 in a mutual fund for retirement, by the time that you hit age 65, that amount of money will have grown to over $4 million. And then he said, I hope you're really enjoying that car. <laughs> right? So there is a point, sisters and brothers, where we have saved enough. When is that? I don't know. God doesn't say literally this is the threshold. Conventional wisdom would say 10%. 10, 10, 80. You live that out, what you're going to end up with is doing very well. And having that big pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, you know what it allows you to do? Is give more. It's really not designed for you to keep I watched a documentary on Warren Buffett uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, he's keeping a billion, giving everything else away. $100 billion he's giving away. 
they're out to get by on a billion. I don't know how he does it. <laughs> but, you know, you sit there and you go, it's, there's something oddly theological about it. Um, I was in a private conversation once with, with Rick Warren. We were in a house uh, here in San Diego, actually. There were about a dozen young pastors there. And he's written the best-selling book in the English language other than the Bible, okay, Purpose-Driven Life. You know, tens of millions of, of copies. And, you know, he was kind of riffing for a while, and, and it was like drinking out of a fire hose. He's a brilliant man, a godly man. But he goes, he goes yeah, you know, I found myself asking all the time, what, why would God let me write that book? Like, there are a lot of people who could have written a book. A lot of great books have been written, but they have never sold like that. Well, why me? Why, 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 why me? And he, he then said, he goes, I think God knew what we would do with it. So he and his wife, when they got married, now they've been married uh, probably pushing 50 years now. But uh, when they got married, they decided they'd start tithing, and they would add 1% to their giving every year. And so by the time that he wrote that book, they were giving away a substantial amount of income. So he went back. He wrote a check back to Saddleback for every paycheck he'd ever received. Paid them all back. Lived in the same house that he, that he moved into when he got here. Drives the same car. Um, but he viewed it as an opportunity to give more money. So he took it, started a big uh, initiative to help people less fortunate overseas, did a whole bunch of other things with it, and now... Um, you know, works for free for Saddleback. I think that's awesome. So if God blesses you with resources, use them for the kingdom. By all means, you know, send the kids to college or whatever, yada, yada, yada. But obey God in what you're doing. And don't think that the goal is for you to have eight or ten houses by the time you're done. The Bible would say that's how you end up broke, actually. Ask the, go see that documentary I saw. Guy's talking about how he got out and he bought a house for everybody in his family as soon as he signed his contract. One for mom, one for his sister, two for his brothers, two for his uh, you know, aunts and uncles and everybody else, family that meant something to him. He bought them a house. And then money, money was gone before he even, you know, got started with it. But there's wisdom, right? Proverbs 13, 11 says, Wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. Lastly, generous giver. Uh, Proverbs 11.23 and following says, One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and one who waters will himself be watered. Here's another one, Proverbs 3.9-10. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all you produce, then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be burst, bursting with wine. Okay, the generous giver is one who gives with an obedient will, a joyful attitude, and a compassionate heart. We are created in the image of God, remember, who gives us more abundantly, uh, to us more abundantly than we can possibly fathom. And because we're, we were created in his image, we were created to be generous. That's why you feel good when you do something for somebody. It's because you're created in the image of a compassionate and very generous God. So giving does at least two very powerful things, okay? First, it contributes to the missional objectives of God. In Exodus 36, a remarkable story is told. Uh, Moses uh, has been asking the people to gather materials to do some building, okay, for, for God's people. 
And then it says this in 36, uh, verse 6 of Exodus. Then Moses gave an order, that, uh, and they sent this word throughout the camp. No man or woman is to make anything else as an offering for the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing more because what they already had was more than enough to do all the work. Do you get that? Stop giving. We have too much. We don't need it. Imagine that. Getting to a point where the church was giving so lavishly that everybody had what they needed. There were no needy among us. Buildings were paid off. Um, able to grow at the clip that we'd like to be able to because there's enough resources there to do the things that we'd like to be able to do, to be able to transform and change the community around us by doing acts of service and good. Um, giving declares who's Lord in your life, Jesus says, not me. It declares freedom from the kingdom of thingdom, if you will. To give away money is to win a victory over the dark powers that oppress us, Gordon Crosby said, or Jesus put it this way, Acts 20, 35, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Billionaire George, Gra George Grazia Dio, he said, the money you earn feeds your family, the money you give away feeds your soul. It was his way of saying, I love giving away money. It does so much, it makes me feel so much better than doing it the other way. So here are three quick ways people pseudo give as we round third base here, okay? Some people will say, I'll give if it benefits me. Um, so, you know, I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine, or I'll give as long as you do what I want you to do with it. I'll give it and I want you to do X with it. Uh, and usually there's, a, there's a something at the end that allows them to personally benefit from it. Another, give if there's anything left over, give scraps. And another is giving out of a sense of duty alone. Okay, God loves a cheerful giver. But in that passage, for those of us who've been in church a while and we hear God loves a cheerful giver, don't give under compulsion for God loves a cheerful giver. We've taken it to say, if you're in a bad mood, then don't give. That's not what it means. What he's saying is adjust your attitude. Don't adjust your giving, adjust your attitude so that you're giving in a joyful way as opposed to uh, adjusting your gift to fit your negative attitude. Um, tithing, if you're not familiar with it, is the practice of 10%, giving 10% of one's gross income to the church. Um, research would indicate that only about 5% of Christian families do that. 5%. Uh, so, and by the way, that 2001, that number was 14%. Now it's 5 Okay. Uh, if you're wondering where I'm getting all this information from, I wrote my dissertation on giving patterns in churches. So I, uh, I read a lot of this stuff. Um, here's another one that will make you go, what? I don't believe that. It's true. <laughs> um, we call it the rule of a third in, in the land of, of uh, giving. Here's what it means. Rule of a third means one third of people in, in the average church in America. And by the way, this is true regardless of geography, regardless of the wealth of the church. So you can go to, you know, St. Paul's Cathedral in New York City and, and then go to an inner city church in downtown Dallas, and this is going to apply. One-third, okay, give zero. One-third of the people that are members there give zero. Another third give $500 a year or more, basically 10 bucks a week or more. And another third give over $500 a week or more. Okay, margin of error on that's about 5%. So, 
We are not nationally or at any level exhausting ourselves with what we're giving. If Christians are giving an average of 2.5% of their income right now, during the Great Depression, it was 3.3%. Also a fact, okay? So, as we keep going through this, here's, here's where um, it all ties together. The main reason that people who tithe tend to have better financial portfolios than others is not because they have more money. It's because they have their financial house in order and they have a worldview that says money doesn't exist solely for self-serving purposes. The finances of Christians who tithe are generally healthier than those who don't, according to a new report that takes a close look at the financial, spiritual, and giving practices of people who give 10% or more of their income away to churches or charities in a given year. So for instance, among tithers, 80% have no unpaid credit card bills. 74% of them don't owe anything on their cars. 48% own their home outright. 28% are, on top of that, are otherwise debt-free. The weird thing is, a tither looks at themselves and they say to themselves, well, I'm better off because, because I give. A non-tither looks and says, oh, they give because they're better off. That's, that's, not, that's not true. Now, uh, if you want to just look at ourselves in the mirror, here's the reality. Um, if our church tithed for one week, we would likely hit our annual budget. That's what those numbers would contain. Okay. So I'm telling you this because the tithing piece is, is, a, is a leading indicator. It's something that often points to other things. That's what scripture is saying, right? So when we uh, approach summertime, this classic time for us to splurge, to deepen the financial holes that we're in, uh, God would love for this to be a different kind of season in which we deepen our relationship with him by managing his money according to his principles. Genuine financial freedom is the contentment that we experience as we faithfully manage our financial resources according to God's purposes and principles. And what it does is it sets you free from worry. And here's the other thing. I want to throw this one in for free. I had an experience. One of the things that changed my view of this and, and put it in stone for me was being in a situation or two early in our marriage where somebody needed our help and we couldn't help them. I will never forget how that felt. And I just, re I realized I don't like that feeling. And part of the reason that I want to be able to do this, I want to manage our house in a way that honors God is A, first of all, it pleases God. That's number one, always going to be number one. But number two is I then don't have to spend my time worrying about how I'm going to pay these bills, pay those bills, do this, do that, or whatever. I know that I've, I've given God my first and my best and that the storehouse has some grain in it. Uh, and if that means I've got to take a couple less vacations, th that's fine. If it means I don't drink another cup of coffee at Starbucks, that's okay. That is a great trade, people. If I told you, if you don't go to Starbucks anymore, you will never have to worry about money again, would you do it? Would you make that trade? And, and if that trade were to be made, could you stick with it? Right. So what I'm going to do um, just kind of as we close is, is read this to you, and then we're going to honor our seniors here. Remember, we're only talking, seniors, I'm only talking to you, not your parents. 
all right? Um, that God, God's desire for our lives is that we be diligent earners, prudent consumers, cautious debtors, wise savers, generous givers, okay? And that sets us free from worry. Um, Scotty, come on up here wherever you are. Um, I'm going to read this text. Go ahead and come out. I'm not ready for you just yet to do the singing thing. But um, let's, uh, I'm going to offer a prayer here in a second. Listen to what Jesus says. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And for those of us who want our hearts to be with Christ, uh, we say we want to put our treasure where we want our hearts to be. That's what that text is asking us to do. Um, so with that in mind, let me offer a word of prayer, and then we're going to celebrate some singing. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, for the lessons of your word, for how it holds the truth up to us, makes us look in the mirror, uh, makes us uh, be honest with ourselves and be honest before you. We give you thanks. Father, uh, for those who are in trouble here financially, I pray, Father, that you would uh, encourage them to ask for help. Ask somebody that they know or ask somebody here at the church. For people uh, who you have blessed, Father, help us to be faithful. Um, help us to, to honor you uh, with our, our money and possessions. Uh, Father, help us to have an eye for people uh, who are less fortunate and have compassion for them. And Father, for the young people that we're about to celebrate, Father, guide their hearts and their minds and their way of life toward a God-honoring perspective of what money is, that it's your way of bestowing grace upon your children for daily bread and to be a vehicle and a tool for good in this world. And so, Father, while we say we will not serve both God and money, we will serve you, Father, with money. We will serve you, Father, with all of our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.